Greetings from Bangor, Maine, the home of downtown and downtown the podcast. Welcome to episode number 56. I'm Rich Kimball, joined by Carrie Haskell. We're brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. And by Pineland Farms Dairy, Maine cows, Maine milk, Maine cheese, Pineland Farms. Two terrific guests on the program this week, author Annie Jacobson will join us, and actor-director and Maine native Katie Azelton. That's what we've got lined up for you this week. Uh, we'll talk everything from movies to paramilitary activities. Well, that's the subject of the latest book from Annie Jacobson. The last time we had her on our program, she talked about her terrific book, Phenomena, about the government's uh, many years, several decades of research into psychic phenomena, uh, everything from ESP to remote viewing. Annie Jacobson is at it once again, looking uh, behind the curtain to see what the government has been doing, this time in her brand new book, Surprise, Kill, Vanish, The Secret History of CIA Paramilitary Armies, Operators, and Assassins. It's a fascinating book, as is our conversation with author Annie Jacobson. I'm wondering at this point in your career, Annie, how do you get people to continue to share secrets with you when they, they know what's going to be revealed in those books because you've told us so much in your work about what's gone on behind closed doors in our government. It's such a fascinating story, this one, because it deals with the CIA's paramilitary capacity, which I think most Americans don't even know exists. So you have a really extraordinary window into this world of what are also called black operators. And um, to answer the question how I, how I got the story, I tell the story through one of the oldest, longest-serving CIA paramilitary operators in history, a guy called Billy Waugh. He's now 89. And a lot of his earlier actions have been declassified. And then through him, because he's such a legend in the field, I was able to get a lot of the other guys to speak with me because, you know, they really... Um, there's a way in which operators can talk about what they do without giving you OPSEC, which is operational security, which, of course, compromises, you know, actions that are taken overseas. And this book is about uh, what is called tertia optia. Can you explain what that is? Yes, that is the premise. And again, something most people don't know. I was not aware of this as I embarked upon writing this and reporting and researching the book. So we're all familiar with the first option, which is diplomacy. That is what uh, the government strives for, really the president. And then when that doesn't work, the second option is war. And after World War II, written into the National Security Code, was this idea of a third option. Latin is a tertia optio. And what that means is the president has a third way of dealing with conflicts with uh, our adversaries overseas, and that is through this gray world of taking paramilitary action. The reason it's called paramilitary is because it's not the military. It's, it's mm. you know, alongside the military in the shadow world. The genesis for the book, and it's a wonderful story that you tell early on, is about 10 years ago, one of your sources paid a visit. Uh, your kids had G.I. Joe's scattered in the yard, and he ended up with permission giving them a little uh, impromptu weapons lesson. That's 
right. I mean, that was pretty shocking for me for two reasons, okay? So the source was visiting from the Middle East. Um, he brought me one of those challenge coins, which is like a little mm-hmm. medallion, and it said uh, State Department Kabul, Afghanistan on it. And I thought that was fascinating because the source was a weapons-trained, um, you know, military-trained individual, not a diplomat. And here he had this coin. So he's showing the boys, my young sons, the G.I. Joes and how their weapons work. And I knew he was a licensed weapons instructor. So when he asked, is it all right if I show the boys uh, a real handgun and a real um, weapon, you know, is that, would that be all right with you and your husband? Said yes. He sets up this sniper rifle in the dining room. And through the scope, I can see across the canyon the veins on a leaf. Mm. And I thought to myself, well, now I know what the source does in Afghanistan. But then something really peculiar happened. Um, There was one case on the floor that he never opened. And when the boys were back outside, I said, what's in that case? He opens it up. There's a long knife with a serrated edge. And I said, well, what's that for? Sort of immediately realizing my naivete. He said, sometimes a job requires quiet. And that line really got me thinking, not just about what he did because or does, because it was shocking, but my reaction to it, Rich, because I wondered why is it that I could kind of accept from a distance this idea of actions being taken through, you know, a, a sniper rifle, but close quarters killing, you know, putting that knife in someone's ribs, that really gave me pause. I wanted to explore, you know, this idea, both what CIA operators are doing overseas and how we as a country or as individual citizens deal with, you know, ungentlemanly warfare is what it's called. And this goes back, this is not a new story, it goes back to the 1940s, to the precursor to the CIA, uh, the OSS, to uh, the Jedbergs, and uh, it's a fascinating tale. And this is this has gone on for longer than most Americans would ever understand. That's right. And I, that moral issue, I thought, really, when I, when I was looking at the history, as I always do, and I learned that the, the OSS, it's called the Office of Strategic Services, that was our... Per- paramilitary unit in World War II, sort of outside the regular army. And with the British, they were jumping out of aircraft into Nazi-occupied territory. Um, you know, so that's, the, and then they would, they would kill Nazis with, not, you know, knife to the throat. And everyone thought, well, that's great because they're Nazis. That's where that motto, surprise, kill, mm. vanished, which is the title of my book, comes from. Well, it's a tremendous story. And you mentioned Billy Waugh. My word, what an amazing guy. The The description of what he went through in, in Vietnam is just uh, incredibly harrowing. And I, I want to get back to him later on because he's such a key piece of this, particularly when you travel with him a, a little bit later on. I'm also fascinated by, I, I guess, the different euphemisms that we have used in our government through the years for what is essentially a kill list. That's right. That's right. And again, history becomes really interesting in when you look at the present day. Okay, so I'll just give you a smattering of examples of what these different presidents call their assassination program. Because, you know, of paramilitary action, of the third option, the tip of the tip of the spear, if you will, is 
in killing an individual person on a target list. And when Eisenhower was doing that way back after the end of, you know, in the 50s, his unit was called the Health Alteration Committee. (laughs) I mean, right? And then, you know, President Kennedy called it the Executive Action Committee. Um, Jumping forward to the Reagan years, it was called Preemptive Neutralization. (laughs) And during the Obama administration, we heard about it square on the nose, which was targeted killing. And so you can see how that nomenclature has shifted over time, where originally it was kind of the idea of like, well, no one will know what this is, and if they find out about it, you know, we'll deny it and just say, oh, that was a health alteration committee. And now, of course, it's it's no, it can't be denied because the uh, the publicity that comes with lethality in the world in which we live in the modern era. Um, you know, you can't you can't deny that. And so now it's called targeted killing. We're talking with Annie Jacobson about her wonderful new book, Surprise, Kill, Vanish. Uh, it was, I believe, after the Bay of Pigs that President Kennedy changed the protocol a little bit in terms of how decisions were made and who would handle those decisions. You know, good for you for noticing that in this very long book, because that is actually that is absolutely true. And it's it's astonishing. It's a, it's a really important piece of military history that I think gets left out because um, Kennedy was mortified after the Bay of Pigs invasion, which, by the way, was a CIA paramilitary operation. So readers can see, oh, there are all these events, they say to themselves, oh, I knew about that, but I didn't know that was the context, okay? So the Bay of Pigs happens. Kennedy's furious. And he rips away the authority of the CIA to conduct paramilitary operations. Um, They have what's called Title 50 authority. That's what makes it legal. And Kennedy gives that authority to the U.S. military, to the Pentagon, which normally works under what's called Title 10 authority. Their rules of engagement are very different. But by Kennedy upending that out of a deep embarrassment, um, he really, you know, got the Vietnam War going, is my understanding of having of reading the historical documents on that. He got the shadow war going mm. in, you know, pre-Gulf of Tonkin, long before this, by giving the Pentagon the capacity to conduct paramilitary operations, which before that were very small, because the CIA acts with a very small footprint. The, the, you get the Defense Department involved, and it's, you know, massive amounts of money, big foot, footprint, big action. And, Rich, we see that today in Afghanistan and Iraq. Well, yes, and, and you talk about that as well. The, the Defense Department seems to be focused in, in many ways on new technology, the next big thing, large outlays of capital expenses, which in many ways gets us further and further away from the mission of these, uh, what are they referred to, singletons? Yes, yes. Well, the CIA has singleton operators. That's one guy going at it alone, like Billy Waugh is so famous for, famous within the community. But you, but the Pentagon acts, you know, like with a giant footprint. And you're absolutely right that they're always looking for bigger technologies. They're they're kind of fueling the military industrial complex with their giant, you know, they they act like a giant machine. And so when they take over these CIA paramilitary operations, you know. In my examination of all of this, things go 
really big and really bad really quickly. I was fascinated by this section on the work done by Mac V. I had a friend who uh, I, I assume was in some sort of special forces uh, during the Vietnam War who had told me stories on more than one occasion of going on uh, LERPs, long-range reconnaissance patrols, into Laos and Cambodia and how they would they would take their dog tags before they made those journeys and, and were told up front, if anything happens to you, you're not there. Absolutely. So he, your friend there was would have been a member of MACV SOG because they were taking paramilitary actions, leaving the traditional war theater of Vietnam, crossing uh, another sovereign nation's border where we were not supposed to be working, in that case Laos or Cambodia, and doing operations, which is exactly why he pulled his dog tax off. He wouldn't have been wearing any markings on his uniform. You can see that in photographs now from, from the Vietnam War in these MACV SOG operators. And we see that same thing today. Little known fact, you know, people talk about the bin Laden raid, and they often say, oh, the SEALs killed bin Laden. Well, those guys were SEAL trained, absolutely. But it was a CIA mission, meaning they became essentially CIA operators for the night. They did not have markings on their uniforms. If the mission had gone bad, it would have been plausibly denied. And that's because... The CIA can kill people in a sovereign nation under that Title 50 code, but the Defense Department cannot. The story in the book uh, of Che Guevara is fascinating to me because I'm, I'm uh, old enough to remember a time when he was viewed by a lot of people in this country as a, a romantic hero, a revolutionary that people could look up to. But as, as you point out in the book, this was a guy who fought more aggressively for nuclear war than even Fidel Castro did. Yes, and that is the reason, I believe, from my examination of the documents, why the president wanted Che Guevara dead, why he was on the list, and why he was killed in a CIA mission. Um, the, the actual trigger pullers were Bolivian Rangers, but CIA officer Felix Rodriguez was there on the ground, and I inter him, interview him for the book. And, you know, it's a really complex idea that we killed Che Guevara and why. And, you know, I'm, I'm interested that you, you too saw that conundrum because by the time Che was actually killed, you know, he'd been banished, if you, if you will, from Cuba, and he was pretty much not a threat to anybody, but he had been. And that makes the story that you tell about uh, your journey in June of 2017 with Billy Waugh down to Cuba, even more incredible uh, that you sat as the guest of Shea's son, Ernesto Guevara. Yes, and one of the reasons that I did that goes back to that opening discussion that we had in the beginning of this interview about the morality of all this, about why, about passing judgment on this, because that's kind of the knee-jerk reaction, I think, of most people. And then what is it like to sit with that? And so to that end, I traveled with Billy Waugh back to the two of the last communist countries in the world, because that's why this was all set up. The president's paramilitary army was to, you know, play dirty tricks against the enemy, against the communists, against Russia and its satellite nations. And so Billy Waugh and I, here he is in his late 80s, when we traveled to Cuba we he was going on a halo jump which is a 
a, a paramilitary operators or really any military operators infiltration technique extraordinaire halo stands for high altitude low opening so you jump out of an aircraft and then you go down terminal velocity really fast pull the ripcord very low the idea is you're avoiding radar and then you land, you meet up with your team, and you run off. And Billy did his kind of last halo jump at age 87 and a half into the sea there in Cuba with Ernesto Guevara. And then afterwards, we sat at the cigar club where Che Guevara and Fidel Castro once plotted the downfall of the United States. And we sat there and smoked cigar. And, you know, the two of them talked about war. And it really made me think and wonder, not is this right or wrong, but is is it necessary? And then you made a, a similar journey to Vietnam with Billy that was also incredible. I mean, that's right. You know, we went to, so there was, going going back to the Vietnam War, this is when these missions to kill individual people really vamped up. And one of the missions was to kill General Jop, which, you know, most Americans have long since forgot about. But during the Vietnam War, he was, you know, more loathed than... Ho Chi Minh, because he had, you know, the the country loved him. He was the leader of the North Vietnamese Army. And Billy Waugh was in charge of the unit, the MACV SOG unit, that was going to kill General Jop at this command center in Laos. Waugh watched the whole mission from the air, what's called forward air control, um, circling around in a little Cessna as all these helicopters came in to deposit operators to go kill Jop. Well, the plan went absolutely awry and within you know seconds became a rescue mission not a get job mission but again billy waugh and i traveled to vietnam to meet with the son of job who did not die was not killed uh by the cia or the pentagon during the war but instead died just a few years ago at the age of 103 and again we sat there in general job's garden uh in his in his home where he, too, had plotted the downfall of the United States with Ho Chi Minh, um, with their communist benefactors. And the same question was discussed, which is, why are we doing all this? Is it even necessary? What type of person becomes one of these CIA operators? Is there a, is there a common thread? Yes, they're almost all military trained. I mean, a few of the sort of more intellectual guys go to maybe graduate from college and go right to the farm, they tend to become what are called paramilitary operations operators, operations officers. So, and they would, they're like sort of the equivalent of the, of the commander of a unit. They would, they, they lead. But most of the guys, most of the operators are military trained. So they're Delta, SEALs, MARSOC, PJs, Green Berets for decades. And then they retire and they join the CIA's paramilitary army, which really made me think a lot about these small footprint operations because everyone that I was interviewing, and I interviewed 42 guys for the book, was really clear about their skill level, about their training, about the fact that they were in essence saying, send me. And I... As a mother of young, as a mother of boys, one of whom is now 19, I really, and having also interviewed many young soldiers who have gone to war, who have come back, many of them with terrible PTSD, missing limbs, um, 
not terribly well-trained at age 19, not aware of what they're getting themselves into, and really suffering the consequences of war after. I asked myself that same question, you know, uh, where does, who is best fit to be doing the shadowy world of the third option? And the Billy Waugh story, if I remember correctly from the book, when, when he was out of the military originally, he was he was working what, in, a, in a post office until he got pulled back in. Is there a sense among guys like Billy that they miss the game? I think absolutely. I mean, I, and, and I don't think I know because I'm, I'm told that by people because, you know, they have such a sense of person, purpose. Imagine if your job, I mean, I can literally only imagine... Hell, you know, halo jumping in, landing behind enemy lines, you know, the surprise element. On the ground, then taking care of the mission, doing what you have to do, the kill element. Then vanishing, meaning you have to exfiltrate without getting caught, because you would be certainly either executed or thrown in prison for the rest of your life. Imagine the adrenaline that that produces. And if that's how you're built, if that's what you want to do, Imagine coming back to normal life, if you will. And like Billy Waugh in the 1970s after the Vietnam War, working in the post office. I mean, Billy Waugh had an amazing line to me. He said, you know, he never, this is a man who's operated in 64 countries and took the first surveillance photographs of Osama bin Laden, for example, in Sudan in the early 1990s. And he said the only time he was ever afraid in his whole life was when he was working at the post office in nine, around 1975, after the end of the Vietnam War, because he feared that he would become an old man at the end of the bar, talking about the war. Well, it is an incredibly fascinating, well-researched book, Surprise, Kill, Vanish. I have a feeling, much like Phenomena, that has stayed with me to this day. I'm going to be thinking about this book for a, a long time to come. Annie, it's a great to have you back on our show. Thank you so much for making time for us today. Always a pleasure. Annie Jacobson talking about her brand new book, Surprise, Kill, Vanish. We'll take a little break. When we come back, actor and director Katie Asselton joins us. It's Downtown, the podcast. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Since 2005, Pineland Farms Dairy has been making the finest cheese in Maine. Cheddar, Monterey Jack, Pepper Jack, Baby Swiss Feta, and those unbelievably good cheese curds are made from all natural milk from the state of Maine. You can find Pondland Farms cheese at Hannaford Supermarkets, Shaw's, Whole Foods, and other great shops throughout Maine and New England. And you can visit online as well at PinelandFarmsDairy.com. Maine cows, Maine milk, Maine cheese. Pineland Farms. Our next guest on the podcast appeared for several seasons on the FX series The League. Also on Legion on Fox and a number of motion pictures as well, including a couple very interesting ones. 
that are in post-production. We had a chance to catch up recently with actor, director, and Maine native Katie Azzle. Hey, it was great to see you recently uh, on Veep. How did that uh, appearance come to pass? It was very funny, as always. Wasn't that so fun? Well, the reality is, is when Veep calls, you take you take that call and say yes. Um, and I was just so excited to have an opportunity to work with those guys um, before the show ended. It's their final season. So I would have done craft service for them if I could have. Um, <laughs> they didn't offer. <laughs> Instead, they offered me a small role, which I was also happy to take. Yeah, we had uh, Anna Klumski on last week and, and Tim Simons, who's, of course, also from Maine. And, uh, yeah, I, I love the series, but it Do was... you know that I I have run into Tim on our flights home for the holidays? Oh, really? Yeah, we we tend to travel back to Maine together. <laughs> well, he's a good guy, and he's got a new, uh, new development deal uh, for a series with HBO, too. So, good stuff. We'd like to see those Maine people succeed. I know, me too. And uh, love the, the episode that you did for uh, Mark and Jay's show, Room 104. That was terrific. Uh, what a dream. I love that experience so much. It's so interesting. Room 104 is such uh, a cool show in that it's an anthology series. So every episode is its own sort of standalone story, uh, all taking place in the same hotel room. And so to get to play a character who is or is not artificial intelligence and to play with that for 25 minutes was so insane and so fun it, it, we only had two days to shoot it it was wild um a lot of words well it was terrific and, um, but i loved it now i loved your work on legion season three is coming up will your character be back you know in a in a sort of strange way yes but but in a general way of speaking, no. Hmm. In that, I technically am not there, but Aubrey's character, Lenny, still sort of has my body. <laughs> okay. So, I there's pieces of Amy there. Katie Azelton is not there. Well, a little bit is better than nothing at all. <laughs> sure, I like to be a nice memory. <laughs> We're talking with Katie Azelton here on Downtown. Somebody asked you the other day on social media, and I, I thought it was a great question. Why don't you do? Why don't you do more episodic uh, TV guest shots on TV? Because every time, every time you show up, it's great. I loved your work on Curb Your Enthusiasm. What's wrong with these people in Hollywood? Why don't, why don't I do more television? <laughs> I love that he asked, as if it was a choice of mine. Right, I've, right, yes. I don't want to do more television. <laughs> the reality is I would love to do all of the television. I do feel insanely lucky that I've gotten to be a part of, like, these very iconic shows like Curb Your Enthusiasm and The Office and Veep, and um, and I've gotten to work with incredible actors. But, yes, would I like to be on a, a more regular show more regularly? Yeah. Let's work on that. I know. We'll get those people to pay attention, smarten up a little bit. Come now, on. You've got a couple of movies. It's like, you know, I remember, remember my parents would be like, Katie, I just don't understand why you're not on a commercial for, you know, AT&T. I'd be like, yeah, I don't I don't get it either. I don't know. I would love to. That sounds great. Let's talk about a couple of movies that you've worked on that both look terrific, um, starting with one that will be released in a couple of weeks, The Tomorrow Man, working with some pretty talented folks, John Lithgow and Blythe Danner. 
Yeah, this was, um, it's a small independent. It premiered at Sundance this year. And again, I just am so, like, I'm getting these crazy opportunities to work with, like, the most iconic actors, you know? Um, and John Lithgow and Blythe Dan are, are just maybe the loveliest. I'd love to speak about the movie. I haven't seen it. But it's a really, it was a really interesting script. And um, the director was a first-time director, but he was a cinematographer for David Fincher for a while. So he's got really beautiful vision. So I can imagine it's going to look really good. And then uh, also another movie that's uh, in post-production right now, The Devil uh, Devil Has a Name, directed by Edward James Olmos, Martin Sheen, (laughs) David Strathairn. I'm getting getting all these beautiful, amazing actors in the last chapters, right? Wow. (laughs) But there really was, like, crazy. I mean, Martin Sheen. I had to, like, have courtroom battles with Martin Sheen. How amazing is that? that is, that's fantastic. It's epic. It's like real dream dream come true stuff. Uh, any idea when that one will be coming out? I am assuming in the next year or so. I'm not quite sure what their plans are. I know that I just did ADR like two, two or three months ago, so that tracking-wise means maybe in like six months. Yeah. We'll see it. We, we talked with you before about uh, the wonderful film that you uh, directed and starred in and, and filmed right here in Maine, Black Rock. Uh, any, any more directing work in your future? Because that was so good. Yeah, I've actually, I just, um, I'm putting it together as we speak, and hopefully we'll be shooting it in the fall is the plan. Um, but it is, it's, it's slightly genre-y, but not nearly as genre-y as Black Rock. It's more in the freebie realm of like uh, an emotional character-driven movies but it's weird and dark and eerie and fun i like the sound of that a lot have you uh, have you seen leg bell's new series i have isn't she fantastic she is wonderful what a breath of fresh air that is it's a, such an interesting time in television and, and in film now because in some ways there are more opportunities there are more platforms to get work out there, but does that also mean that when you're trying to put something together, whether it's a film or, or a television series, that uh, it's it can be easy for people to sort of get lost with so much content available? Absolutely. I think it's, it's really the most dif- difficult now for the, the executives. On the executive side, people are, are a little bit scared to take major chances. They want sure things, and they want the next Game of Thrones, and they want these very big, epic, movie-star-driven things to draw audiences to their platforms, whether it be a network or a streaming service. I think, you know, in the years leading up to this, and like the five years leading up to this, Netflix and Amazon, it was like the wild, wild west, and they were putting together this amazing programming that could be very small and independent and very different than what you saw on network television. And now I think they are even a little bit hesitant to do that because there is such a glut of, of stuff out there. Um, and so everyone is a little gun-shy. Everyone's a little not sure what is going to work. And, and if it's going to work now, it really, really, really has to work um, in order to rise above all of the rest. Uh, it's a real tricky time. And I'm like, we're in like that time of the year right now, like this very sickening time in, in Los Angeles, which is when network shows are getting picked up and and Mm. canceled so i just like i have nothing on the chopping block right now and i'm still nauseous when i open my phone 
because shows are getting canceled when they shouldn't be and shows are getting picked up that maybe shouldn't. It is, it's a real, it's a tenuous time, I think, for television, but there's so much good TV that hopefully we will sort of find a balance and um, some stable ground and people can see and networks can see and streaming services can see that it really, truly in the end will be quality. I I think I'm being very idealistic when I say that, but hopefully it will be the quality that really rises to the top. I hope you're right. Absolutely. Uh, Will you and Mark get some time in Maine this summer? Uh, We are not going to make it all the way to Maine, but we'll make it to Maine in the fall, which is my favorite time to be there anyway. Oh, best time of year. It's beautiful. Well, we wish you Mm -hmm. luck uh, with everything you've got going. Can't wait to see uh, your next appearance on the screen. I hope you have a wonderful summer. Get through this Get through this crazy Thanks. time out in L.A. And as always, thank you Thanks. so much for spending some time with us, Katie. Uh, thanks so much for being such great supporters of us, always. Oh, I appreciate bet. it. Katie Hasselton, yeah, got some stuff cooking there. and uh, but She's so good in those guest appearances as well. I'd like to see uh, more of that. But she's a very, very talented actor and director, along, of course, with her husband, Mark Duplass. Our thanks to Katie. Thanks as well to author Annie Jacobson, who talked with us about her great new book, I think it's doing pretty well, Carrie. I'm not sure she needed the downtown bump, but I just read it's in its third printing already. She may not have needed it, but we'll take credit for (laughs) it. Well, yes, every little bit helps. Surprise, kill, vanish. The title of Annie Jacobson's new book. Our thanks to you for joining us this week on the podcast. Hey, if you like the show, go on there and plunk a big old five-star review on. We sure appreciate that. Uh, Tell your friends as well. We remind you, too, the podcast is brought to you every week by Cross Insurance where security meets strength, and Pineland Farms Dairy, Maine Cows, Maine Milk, Maine Cheese, Pineland Farms.